Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Demanding change. More protests over the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols as the officer's unit is permanently disbanded. So much to discuss. First, with the Reverend Al Sharpton and later Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, a key advocate for police reform. Republican revenge. New reaction to Speaker Kevin McCarthy's removal of Congressman Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff from the Intelligence Committee. The cardinal sin appears to be that I led the impeachment of his master in Mar-a-Lago. Democratic Intel Committee members Raja Krishnamurthy and Jason Crow are here to talk about it. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is the queen bee of the GOP. Why this is horrible for the country. I'm Jonathan Capehart. This is The Sunday Show. This Sunday, thousands continue to take to the streets as the nation mourns the death of yet another black man killed at the hands of law enforcement. Memphis authorities initially portrayed it as a routine traffic stop gone awry. But when you're black in America, there is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. We give our children the talk for a reason. We teach our children and remind ourselves how to behave in front of cops, how to talk to cops, be respectful, be calm, all in the hopes that if we are pulled over, that we will survive the encounter. But the release of the footage of five Memphis police officers beating 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, which we must warn you is disturbing, exposed how fleeting that hope can be. Tyree was respectful. Tyree was cooperative until it became clear he was in danger. No wonder he ran away. I would have run away, too, if my home were just yards away and the cops had already made it violently clear that they weren't there to protect and serve. No wonder Tyree Nichols called for his mother. I would have, too. The five police officers involved in the brutalization of Tyree Nichols have been charged with several crimes, including second-degree murder. Their unit, named Scorpion, an acronym for Street Crimes Operations to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods, has been permanently disbanded. And what makes this horror all the more tragic is right there on your screen. Like Tyree Nichols, the officers involved are black. But don't think that diminishes the spotlight on law enforcement's disparate treatment of African Americans. If anything, it highlights an issue so eloquently explained by Clyde McGrady of The New York Times. Quote, problems of race and policing are a function of an entrenched police culture of aggression and dehumanization of black people more than of interpersonal racism. It is the system and the tactics that foster racism and violence rather than the specific racial identities of officers. Joining me now, Reverend Al Sharpton, host of Politics Nation, founder and president 
of the National Action Network and author of Righteous Troublemakers, Untold Stories of the Social Justice Movement in America. Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney and MSNBC legal analyst. And Jazz Hampton, CEO and general counsel for Turn Signal, an app aimed at ending violent traffic stops. Gentlemen, thank you all very much for coming to the Sunday show. Rev, in this case, both the victim, as I said, and as we saw, the victim and all the officers are black. Black officers were also implicated in the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore in 2015. What does this tell you about our about policing culture and how much it upholds already existing systems of oppression, regardless of who the actual police officers are? Well, it tells us that our system is one that is built on uh, you not being held accountable, not feeling that even with body cameras that you can run a narrative. Don't forget, while they were, if you look at the video, while they were beating him and while they were doing illegal things to him, they were saying verbally for the sake of the body cameras, oh, he won't put his hands, what, well, give, give me your hands, when they were holding his arms. And, and one fabricated he was reaching for a gun. So they felt they could get past the body cameras. I guess they didn't realize there was the overhead cameras that the county had, which would show that this young man had not engaged in any reckless driving. There was no basis to stop him in the first place. But I think the other part, as you said, we saw Freddie Gray, there were black officers involved uh, in New York. Sean Bell case, there were black officers involved. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is it doesn't take race out of the question because black officers would not do to white kids what they did in this case. They, I do not believe these five black officers would have done that to whites. So it's still racism. They know what to do, what to get away with. But we have the responsibility to go after them just like we would anyone else. We are not just against white police brutality. We're against all police brutality. And that is why we're going to put the pressure that these men need to fill the uh, feel the full extent of what they've been charged mm -hmm. with. And we need to change federal law, which takes it out of their local uh, uh, officers and friends so that they cannot feel their buddies will look out for them in the department. There needs to be federal law that they're afraid of that also deals with qualified immunity, where they right. have some skin in it. And, and that exactly gets to what I was just about to ask you about, uh, about Charles, because in the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, one of the things that bogged down the negotiations um, between Senators uh, uh, Tim Scott and Cory Booker, along with then-Congresswoman Karen Bass, was this situation over qualified immunity. I'm just wondering, do you think passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and of course the president says if it passes, he's going to sign it, that that would do anything materially to uh, not only reform police, but improve our chances of surviving any kind of encounter with the police. Well, I do, Jonathan. Earlier this week, I tweeted that on some level, Senate Republicans, specifically Tim Scott, uh, have in part the blood of Tyree Nichols on their hands. And I meant what I said when I said it, because simply put, you cannot shift police culture in America without the notion of accountability. Culture shift in any organization starts at the top with leadership and it's maintained through accountability. And one of the things that qualified immunity does is it keeps 
the notion of, of accountability away from police officers who commit wrongdoing. When people and law enforcement violate the bodies of black people and they are not able to face the consequences because of qualified immunity, there's no incentive for them to actually change their ways. And so when you talk about the notion of policy and having uh, police standards and other accountability measures federally mandated through actual legislation, this is exactly what we're talking about. And this is exactly the type of situation that perhaps may have made an officer rethink how they approach a particular situation with the civilian. Is it a panacea? Is it going to fix everything? No, it is not. However, what I can say is that people will think twice about the way they engage the public under a different policing model. And that starts with the removal of a qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, Jazz, this is your uh, return to the Sunday show. It's almost been about two years, I think, and you came on to talk about an app that you had, you and, uh, and, and friends had developed called Turn Signal. And now here we are back um, talking about a traffic stop gone horribly wrong. Um, your app records interactions with cops and calls a lawyer when activated during a police stop. But here's the thing. Tyree was approached by officers in unmarked vehicles. So would your app have helped him in this situation? Yes, turn signal is always available to folks when they feel that need and that pressure. Uh, When there isn't someone else there for them, not only are we connecting them with someone that can help, it's an attorney that's trained in de-escalation, not only for the individuals outside of the vehicle, but for the individual inside of the vehicle as well. So we want to provide that service and say, hey, we are going to be a part of the solution, whether it's your parents, your child, a person of color, or someone just going to work in the morning is going to have someone there to help them de-escalate that interaction and ultimately get them home safely. You know, um, in a video you did, you you pointed out, you know, Minnesota and particularly Minneapolis has been the, the focal point of a lot of this conversation. George Floyd, Dante Wright, um, and uh, uh, Philando Castile, uh, all happening within a relatively short period of time. Dante Wright was killed during the, the trial, I believe it was during the trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, Why does this keep happening? Look, I think that we have to acknowledge that there are deep structural issues in the way that we police in America, especially in communities of color. Uh, Turn signal or any other service isn't a solution to an entire systematic issue that we have and we face today. Uh, But it's the same problems that my father and his father before, before him faced, right? And so we have to change that directly on the ground. We have to be there in these interactions. I always say, if we're struggling to legislate, then we have to innovate. That's why I quit my corporate law job to start Turn Signal with two other black men, uh, mm-hmm. one of which that went to the school that Philando Castile was a cook at, right? We are part of a solution that needs to be built from the ground up while we're waiting on the legislative and larger change to happen across mm-hmm. this country. And, and Rev, you've been, uh, obviously have been in t- touch with Tyree Nichols' family. You're delivering the eulogy at his funeral next week. What's going through your head right now especially after seeing yet another video. What's going through my head is uh, I'm surprised that people are surprised. Uh, When we ask the question of why does this keep happening, my answer is why do you think it's not going to happen until you change federal laws? It's it's almost like, uh, uh, Jonathan, in Jim Crow days, if someone black went into a restaurant and wanted to be seated before the law changed and they threw him out and then somebody comes three days later and they throw him out 
People ask, well, why does this keep happening? Because there's no law to stop it. There is nothing federally stopping these police from continuing to do this. And until we understand that and put the pressure on the Senate and the Congress and remove this from local pals looking out for each other and take qualified immunity off the table, it's going to keep happening. How do you change anything in America? You change it by law, not change it by having sensitivity sessions. Reverend Al Sharpton, Charles Coleman Jr., Jazz Hampton, thank you all very much for coming back to The Sunday Show. Up next, a brand new NBC News poll gives an inside look at how Americans really feel about Trump and Biden's classified document scandal and what they want Congress to do about them. We'll be right back. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This morning, we're getting our first look at what the American people really think of the classified document scandal and the new Republican-led House. A new NBC News poll out this morning shows that even though the situations differ greatly, 67 percent of Americans are concerned about the classified documents found at President Joe Biden's former office and personal home. And the same percentage says the same about classified information found at Donald Trump's residence. And some of Speaker McCarthy's actions, like blocking Congressman Schiff and Congressman Eric Swalwell, seem to fit another poll finding. 55% of Americans believe House Republicans will spend too much time investigating Biden and not enough time on other priorities. Joining me now, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, member of the House Intelligence and Oversight Committees, and Congressman Jason Crow, also a member of House Intelligence and a former House impeachment manager for the first. Trump impeachment of Donald Trump. Congressman, thank you very much for coming to the Sunday show. We've got to talk about the new NBC News poll. Congressman Crow, Americans voted Republicans into power in Congress by a slim margin. But three weeks in, we're seeing that they don't seem to be about governing or legislating, but about retribution. And we've been talking a lot about um, Congressman Swalwell and Co Congressman Schiff not rejoining you on the House Intel Committee. Does that help the American people in any way? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, the short answer is no, it does not. Uh, the American public uh, is very smart. They know the difference between credible oversight, credible accountability uh, in politicized investigations, politicized actions, removing people from the, the House Intelligence Committee, which is an extremely important committee that both Raja uh, and I sit on, 
for political purposes, does not serve the American public. It does not serve American national security. You're taking two very experienced, uh, very credible uh, members of that committee, and you're taking them off, and you're taking that experience away from Americans. So uh, to do that for politics is obviously uh, not consistent with what's in the best interest of the American public, uh, and more so, it actually undermines our national security. You know, Congressman Krishnamurthy on Tuesday, uh, Speaker McCarthy, as he denied the seats to Swalwell and Schiff, uh, claiming they're both unfit to serve on the panel. Congressman Swalwell was on State of the Union this morning and had this to say about it. Listen. This is some Bakersfield BS. It's, it's Kevin McCarthy weaponizing his ability to commit this political abuse because he perceives me, just like Mr. Schiff and Ms. Omar, as an effective political opponent. And as we saw on the screen, it was Swalwell, Schiff, and also Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. So is there any way to see this other than political revenge? Um, it's hard for me to see it in any other way. Look, I think that there was a red line that uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congressman Gosar crossed, uh, which was promoting political violence. Uh, just to refresh your viewers' recollection, Marjorie Taylor Greene said in a video uh, posted on Facebook that uh, Nancy Pelosi was guilty of treason punishable by death. She then approvingly um, liked posts on her Facebook page saying that Pelosi and FBI officials should be executed for treason. And then in Gosar's case, he posted an anime in which he slits the throat of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and then attacks President Biden with swords. Uh, Schiff, Swalwell and, Swalwell, and Omar didn't do any of that stuff. And so that is why, um, you know, what we see happening right now is clear, just political retribution. It's just politics. Um, Congressman Crow, um, as we mentioned before, you know, the American people have some issues with the classified document situation involving both the sitting president, President Biden, and the former president, Donald Trump. Uh, and, um, my question is, is it a problem of elected officials mishandling classified information, or is it a question of overclassification of documents that is at play here, or is it both? Well, Jonathan, there's a couple of main points here. Number one, uh, I take, and I know uh, Raja takes very seriously the handling of classified information. Uh, uh, sometimes these are operational secrets. Uh, Americans' lives can be at stake. Uh, this is very serious stuff, and we have an obligation to take it very seriously. That's number one. Number two, we do have an overclassification problem in the United States government uh, and a misclassification problem. that We need to take a wholesale review of these documents, how they're classified and, and how they're handled, separate from any one particular incident. Number three, I just don't buy these false equivalencies. Automatically, uh, uh, people want to try to draw some kind of equivalency between Donald Trump and President Biden. These are not remotely similar situations. Here you have right. Biden, who actually, on his own, did a review, discovered these documents, disclosed them, and has been fully cooperating uh, in the investigation and the review. And you contrast that with Donald Trump, who resisted subpoenas, who forced FBI agents to go to his resort uh, and confiscate those documents that appear to be some of the most sensitive documents uh, in our U.S. government. Uh, these just aren't the same. You know, Congressman um, Christian Murthy, I want to switch gears for a, a minute because you're, you are on intelligence. And now that we have finally 
we, meaning the United, the United States is sending tanks to Ukraine. The Germans are sending, sending their, uh, or allowing versions of their tanks to be sent to Ukraine. I'm just wondering, are we at a pivot point, do you think, uh, in Russia's war on Ukraine? And are those tanks, do you think, getting to that theater too late? I would have liked to have seen those tanks get there earlier. But um, at this point, I think that uh, provided that they're um, sent to Ukraine in time to counter the Russian uh, kind of spring offensive and to Mm -hmm. enable the Ukrainians to have their own counteroffensives, I think that they'll be still timely. I think 200 main battle tanks, the, uh, the German versions, Uh, of those main battle tanks will make a big difference. Um, And as you can tell on the ground, the Russians are suffering. Um, Some estimates are that they may have lost 100,000 men killed in action, Jonathan. Um, And at this point, uh, the Russians have a hard time uh, mounting a ground offensive. That being said, we have to do everything we can to help the Ukrainians uh, uh, continue their momentum on the ground, but also to equip them with whatever it takes to repel the air offensive that the Russians have also mounted with drones and other fighter aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question to you real quick uh, to, con- uh, to Congressman Crow. Nick Clegg, president of global affairs at Meta, or i.e. Facebook, has said they're re- and Instagram, um, has said they're reinstating Donald Trump's accounts with new guardrails in place to deter repeat offenses. Um, also saying that the danger he once posed has lessened. Um, do you buy that? No. <laughs> who, who, who does this paying attention to what's happened the last five years? I mean, seriously, this man remains a danger to our democracy and to our country uh, from day one of his presidency. Uh, he's a sociopath. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, he, he has shown his willingness to do anything anything uh, to serve himself. And that's, you know, kill kill police officers through an insurrection uh, that's uh, undermine our democracy and our right to vote. Uh, So this this man's very dangerous. Uh, He obviously still has a a very ardent following uh, of folks who continue to become more extreme. So uh, this is a problem and, and will continue to be for some time. So I don't think this is the right decision. Congressman Jason Crow, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thank you both very much for coming to the Sunday show. Up next, chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Congresswoman Judy Chu, on the heartache enveloping the AAPI community in the wake of the Lunar New Year. The criminal investigation into Donald Trump's alleged interference in the 2020 presidential election in Georgia is at a critical inflection point. This week, a Fulton County judge heard arguments on whether to publicly release the final report of a special grand jury that spent months investigating Trump and his allies. During the hearing, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis made one thing clear. She's not ready for the report to be made public. At this time... In the interest of justice and the rights of not the state but others, we are asking that the report not be released because you haven't seen that report. Decisions are imminent. 
The judge has yet to issue a ruling on whether to release the report, but the possibility of criminal charges in this case appears imminent. Joining me now, Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst and former U.S. attorney in Alabama and co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast, and Harry Littman, former U.S. attorney, former deputy assistant attorney general, and host of the Talking Feds podcast. I've been a guest on that podcast. Thank you both very much for being here, Joyce. Does the fact that D.A. Willis does not want to want the grand jury uh, report released, is that a clear signal to you that Trump will be indicted? So I think it's going a little bit too far to say that it's a clear signal that Trump will be indicted. I think it's a clear signal that she expects that she will have a case. And Jonathan, something we've talked about before is prosecutors don't always indict everyone that they're looking at in one fell swoop. Sometimes it comes in stages as prosecutors try to get less culpable people to become witnesses and cooperators against those who are higher up. So I think it's tough to predict here whether she'll have just one big indictment or whether she'll stage it. But by signaling that she doesn't want to release the report, she indicates that she doesn't want a roadmap to her investigation and eventual prosecution released to the public. Uh, and Harry, that actually, Joyce's answer um, just now, what she just said just now, answered one of the questions I was about to ask you, which was, well, why wouldn't they want the, the grand jury report released? Shouldn't the public see it? But if, it, if what it is is a roadmap to the investigation, I get it. But if the judge rules that the final report should be released, Harry, what do you think we will learn? Quite a bit. And as as Joyce says, it's not just the roadmap idea, but this point that, that will um, suggest and recommend certain charges that she's not ready to do. She's really not ready. And it's um, a little bit, um, I think, alarming because I think the judge is going to decide on this this week. He'll give a couple days grace for the Court of Appeals, but she could be all of a sudden on the roller coaster without, you know, her seatbelt and everything else buckled and prepared. So we're I think we're going to see this report and see it before trial. I think it's quite likely there are multiple people that it will recommend indicting. She is not ready to sign off and replicate everything in that report. But man, it behooves her to get ready as immediately because the events could be outside of mm -hmm. her control and quickly. But Joyce, I'm I, so I, maybe I should ask this of Harry, but I'm going to ask this of you. Just, what should D.A. Willis be prepared for? I mean, she's been investigating this uh, th this case for months. So what would the release of the report, why would that be something like she would have to prepare for even more so? Joyce? Right, so to Harry's point— <laughs> To Harry's point, Fonnie Willis interviewed over 75 witnesses or, or around 75 witnesses. Some of those witnesses included people that didn't testify in front of the January 6th committee. For instance, she won a court battle for Mark Meadows' testimony, Trump's chief of staff. We don't know exactly what she's sitting on, but the release of this report, as Harry suggests, is likely to be spectacular. And although prosecutors don't engage in trial by surprise, all of this would be turned over to defendants in the course of pretrial discovery. She does not want to give too much of a lead time here so that potential defendants can get their stories straight. Or even as we've seen some indication to do 
among this group of people to try to influence witnesses. So Willis will likely be prepared to appeal an adverse ruling. The judge really seemed to believe that Georgia law would require him to release the report. It was only a question of whether he would redact pieces of it and of timing. But because Willis does not um, can't go to a grand jury at any point in time, I think the next time it would be feasible for her to indict would be early March based on her grand jury schedule. She will want to delay just a little bit more until charges actually become imminent. And so, uh, Harry, your thoughts on on what Joyce said, same which thing. was in res- same thing. Yeah. No, no, no. But let let me give you one other name. Lindsey Graham. Let's say the special grand jury recommends uh, charges against him, but she doesn't want to do it. Uh Uh-oh. What happens now? It's a big sideshow. She she maybe wants to do it down the line, but her hand is forced. Why didn't she do it? You know, she has she's going to have nothing but controversy and cleat lights on her as soon as she announces charges. This makes it even sooner and gives it an extra dimension of why did you do this, that and not the other? Oh, that is actually a, a really good point, because as I started out this conversation, it was, so how likely is it that Donald Trump's going to get indicted? But, you know, Senator Graham testified. I think you just mentioned Mark Meadows has t- testified. Um, Giuliani, Ju- yeah. Ju- and Giuliani. Joyce, well, let me put it like this in that 30 seconds that we've got left. Who are you expecting or who would you not be surprised if they got indicted? I wouldn't be surprised to see the entire group ultimately get indicted. We always have to remember that there's audio tape of Trump soliciting interference with the election. A big question, Jonathan, beyond our scope today is what do these charges look like? Some are felonies, some are misdemeanors. It'll be up to Willis to craft a package of the most serious, readily provable charges based on the evidence she has. See, um, we're going to have more with Joyce and Harry after a quick break, because, ooh, there's so many more questions to ask. We'll be right back. And we're, we're back with Joyce Vance and Harry Lippman, uh, continuing our conver- legal conversation that we were having a moment ago before we were talking about uh, my almost giddy excitement and anticipation about what's about to happen in in Georgia and D.A. Fonnie Willis's uh, investigation into the interference of the 2020 election. I want to switch gears and talk about another legal matter. This one focused here in Washington, and that is over the whole classified document situation. Um, Donald Trump had the FBI search Mar-a-Lago last August because he kept defying subpoenas and obstructing obstructing justice. Um, And meanwhile, President Biden found documents at his office and there are other documents found at his home that he voluntarily handed over to the National Archives. Then we find out that former Vice President Mike Pence had documents in his home. And so, Joyce, I'm just I'm just wondering um, The situation we have here, to my mind, is um, there are like two questions here. Is it a problem of mishandling, like recklessly mishandling classified documents? Or is it a matter of overclassification where, you know, former Senator Claire McCaskill has said on our air many times about how when she was in the Senate, she would go 
into a classified briefing and come out and be in there and say, I read this in the New York Times the other day, or is it a combination of the two things? Joyce and then Harry. I think it's exactly the right question. Yes, we have an overclassification problem. Everyone in government knows that. I would echo Claire. I've been in briefings where subsequently within days the information was public. And that's a situation we need to reckon with going towards the future. But we cannot say enough how different these situations involving Trump mishandling documents and the discoveries in Biden and Pence's offices and homes are. And the difference has something to do with what you identify state of mind. It's not recklessness with Trump. It's intent. It's knowledge that he had the documents. There's reporting that he personally went through his boxes after the National Archives came knocking on his door and then deliberately withheld them. Thought, talked with members of his own team about perhaps trying to trade them for other documents that he wanted, didn't turn all of them over when he was subpoenaed, caused his team to send in an attestation to DOJ saying everything had been turned over. And ultimately, the Justice Department took what you have to imagine was a very fraught step for Merrick Garland to sign off on seeking a search warrant based on probable cause that crimes had been committed to search the former president's residence, resort, whatever we're calling Mar-a-Lago these days. That's really different from boxes that were packed up years ago that contain classified material. I don't mean to excuse Biden or Pence. That sloppiness is inexcusable. We need, again, to reform the way we handle and classify materials. But there's a huge difference between sloppiness and committing a crime. Harry, your thoughts. Joyce's point is number one, two, and three. All of these stories should just start with this like a public service announcement and no need to cover your mouth. It was obstruction. 100% different problem. But to your first question, I, it's true we overclassify. But the problem here is that, that somehow these documents can walk out because even overclassified documents have that folder and they should never be able to walk out. That's a policy issue. As best we can tell, it is widespread. Pence is just a random guy who looked and lo and behold, that is something you have. It's a poor system. We need to get our hand around it. That policy challenge is 100% different night and day from mm -hmm. the criminal uh, conduct that the Department of Justice is seriously investigating now. Okay, in the less than two minutes that we have left, I do want to get you on something involving the Tyree Nichols case, this, this so-called Scorpion unit, this specialized unit that a lot of police departments have around the country. How problematic are these units, um, especially when they're rolling, rolling through town in, un, in unmarked cars, which, you know, quite honestly, if an unmarked car rolls up behind me and a bunch of guys jump out, I'm not going to think they're the cops. Joyce. Right. So this is a police culture issue, Jonathan. It's something that we should have dealt with, that we have failed to deal with. And now there are going to need to be legal standards passed by the United States Congress uh, tamping in on the sort of qualified immunity that police have relied on for far too long to protect them from outright misconduct. But mm -hmm. there's also responsibility at the top of the leadership in departments, in police and sheriff's departments across the country. We are overdue for systemic reform. And, and Harry, your thoughts real quick. 
Okay, I'm going to sound a counterpoint uh, tentatively. I agree. Everything she said is right. And I, and in these high crime areas, cops are too, uh, they tend to want to control the streets and be tough. Inex inexcusable when there are abuses. But we also have to understand that some of these efforts have actually resulted in, in uh, real crime reduction when they're done right. So I personally am a little nervous of too quickly uh, dispensing with all these groups. They just have to be much, much, much better trained. Much better trained. And part of that training has to be a change in the culture. Harry Lippman, Joyce Vance, thank you both very much for coming back to The Sunday Show. When we come back, California Congresswoman Judy Chu, stay with us. In the first few weeks of 2023, there have already been 40 mass shootings in this country. So far, the deadliest happened last week in Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay, California, where Asian-American communities were celebrating the Lunar New Year, traditionally a joyous period of reflection. Now, it must include a sadly familiar American rite, mourning the victims of gun violence. Joining me now is California Congressman Judy, Congresswoman Judy Chu, chairwoman of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Congresswoman Chu, thank you very much for coming to the Sunday show. I'm not sure many people know that you served on the Monterey Park City Council. You were elected mayor three times. Help us understand the gravity of this shooting happening in a neighborhood known as, quote, America's first suburban Chinatown. I've lived in Monterey Park for 37 years and, of course, served as mayor on the city council. I know this to be a very peaceful city, but our peace was... Uh, so shattered when this gunman came in and shot 11 people dead uh, and wounded nine others. The carnage could have been much worse. He did this at a dance studio, but he went to a second dance studio and had a young man not wrestled him to the ground, he mm -hmm. would have done much worse. Mm -hmm. But the community is reeling. And actually, I've been meeting with victims' families all weekend. Their words just echo in my mind and um, their sorrow, uh, their devastation is just horrendous. Uh, so we are trying to provide as many resources as possible. And I really want to commend Vice President Kamala Harris because she did come down and meet with the victims. You, you know, Congresswoman Chu, um, President Biden asked you if he should go to California or host the Lunar New Year celebration at the White House on Thursday. He shared that you told him we have to move forward, stand in solidarity and in the spirit of toughness that this holiday is all about. Talk about the significance of this tragedy happening during Lunar New Year. Yes, I have urged everybody to continue with the Lunar New Year celebrations, uh, including President Biden. And um, it is important because we need to continue living our lives and trying to reach some normalcy. Actually, the entire community is traumatized. And I've heard from many who say that they felt reluctant to go to uh, big events or to Lunar New Year celebrations or even to visit businesses or to send their kids to school. And I've been mm -hmm. telling them that they need to be able to be with others. They need to continue um, celebrating the cultural events that are important to them. 
And we cannot let this shooter, we cannot let this madman take us backwards and stop. Um, he, we cannot let him stop letting us live our lives. We need to be able to live our lives. Congresswoman, there's a, a 2021 study from the Violence Policy Center found that the gun industry specifically targeted Asian Americans as potential first-time gun owners amid the rise in hate crimes against the AAPI community. How do you feel about the message that guns are the answer? This man was able to get this semi-automatic pistol, but he was also able to obtain an illegal high-capacity magazine that allowed him to shoot many people all at one time. We have a terrible proliferation of guns in this country. We have more guns than people. And what we need uh, is a universal background check uh, that can really work with actually the one that we have now does work, but there are loopholes and some exploit those loopholes by buying through online purchases, gun shows or through private purchases. Uh, and we also need an assault weapon ban. And I am uh, a co-sponsor of the assault weapon ban that we are introducing in Congress this coming week which also would ban these high-capacity magazines that create so much carnage. And real quickly, uh, Congresswoman Chu, we have less than 30 seconds left. Um, you're going to be introducing this legislation, but are you going to have any Republican co-sponsors since now they are the majority? I don't think we have any co-sponsors in this particular bill, but we just have to keep on raising our voices about the need to do something. Now, finally, after Uvalde, there was a bipartisan bill that was the first gun legislation done in 30 years. So there is some hope that there can be a compromise that can uh, address this terrible violence that is occurring mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, I am hopeful uh, and we just have to raise our voices about the terrible suffering that is going on uh, that is causing s for 39 mass shootings mm -hmm. in the first three weeks of 2023. Mm -hmm. Well, the pride of Monterey Park, California, former mayor, but current Congresswoman Judy Chu, California. Thank you very much for coming to the Sunday show. Coming up in the next hour of the Sunday show, we'll break down the looming catastrophe Congress could be heading toward if they don't raise the debt ceiling by summer. But first, one-on-one -on -one with Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass on the death of Tyree Nichols and how she's staying in the fight for police reform nationwide. Much more ahead on the Sunday show, so keep it right here on MSNBC. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This morning, echoes of Rodney King. I'll discuss the similarities between that case and the police beating of Tyree Nichols with Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, one of the leaders in the push for police reform. Plus, a new warning about the debt ceiling. I'll get the latest from Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and Congresswoman Barbara Lee. And why Marjorie Taylor Greene may be the real leader of the Republican Party and a real threat to our democracy. I'm Jonathan Capehart. A brand new hour of The Sunday Show starts right now. A city and country in mourning and anguish today after the killing of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis police. Protesters took to the streets again yesterday after police released surveillance and body cam footage of the fatal traffic stop. It pains me to show any of this, and truth be told, I don't want to. But we must not shy away from this horror. This could be me. This could be your son or dear relative. This could be your colleague. And we must keep that in mind as we see, once again, a black life brutalized by law enforcement. We must warn you, some of the images you are about to see are graphic. The video shows Tyree Nichols' initial interaction with Memphis police. Nichols fled after being tased, but the officers were able to detain him again. And then the officers brutally beat and kicked Nichols. They can be heard gloating about it after they propped Nichols up on a car. The 29-year-old father, who worked for FedEx and was an aspiring photographer, died in the hospital three days later. The savagery on display in Memphis reminds many of the 1991 Rodney King police beating in Los Angeles. King was pulled over for speeding by officers and then mercilessly attacked. It was one of the first instances of police brutality against a black man captured on video, a video that shook America. The officers involved in the Rodney King incident were charged but were acquitted by a jury And that verdict sparked days of protest and unrest. We'll see what happens in the case of the five Memphis police officers involved in the death of Tyree Nichols. They're all facing multiple charges, including second-degree murder. And we have just learned that the bond arraignment for the the five Memphis police officers has been scheduled for February 17th. Joining me now is the Democratic mayor of the city of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Mayor Bass, welcome back to The Sunday Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Jennifer. So many are comparing the Tyree Nichols video to the Rodney King video. You were an activist then, and the riots that erupted then happened in your neighborhood. Is the comparison an apt comparison? Well, I think in some ways it is. I mean, I think what is similar is the fact that you saw a mob of extremely angry officers. In the case of Tyree, they ran to subdue him. And with Rodney King, it was cars. But what was in common was their anger. The other thing that was dramatically different 
is the fact that the police chief who I commend fired the officers immediately and charges happened immediately. You know, with Rodney King, video cameras were black, brand new. The only thing that is different now versus generations and generations of this type of abuse is the technology. So thank goodness for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Madam Mayor, what would you say to those who point to the fact that the five police officers involved here um, are black and that's evidence um, that this isn't racially motivated? Well, I think in this instance, you could still question whether it was racially motivated. But in this instance, the officers were African-American. What it reveals is a fundamental problem with policing in our country, which is not new to African-Americans. And Mm African-Americans will tell you their exchanges with black officers don't always go so well. But I'm happy to say that the Congressional Black Caucus with its new leader, Stephen Horsford, is raising again the George Floyd Justice and Mm. Policing Act and has called for negotiations because clearly this is a national phenomenon. And until we get to the fundamentals of policing in the United States, Jonathan, there's 18,000 police departments and 18,000 methods of policing. The the profession needs to be uh, accredited. Standards needs to be imposed. And it's really not only a question of training. It is a fundamental question of leadership and culture. Well, let's talk more about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, because when you were in Congress, you shepherded that act to passage in the House. You were in an unusual arrangement. You were part of the group trying to broker a deal for it to get passed by the Senate. You weren't successful. But should Tyree Nichols be a catalyst for a renewed effort? Absolutely. That brutal Uh, murder of that young man absolutely should be a new catalyst. And I'm hoping that that's exactly what the Black Caucus will need. So Mm -hmm. let's see what happens. I mean, I know in this caucus, I mean, in this Congress, it might seem futile. But you know what? I mean, a couple of months ago, Congress, the House and the Senate passed marriage equality. He would have never thought of that as well. So sometimes legislation that is unexpected passes at moments because of the catalyst of, and the outcry. Mm-hmm. But back then, Democrats had were in the majority in the House and the Senate and the president being right. in the White House. This go around, um, the Republicans are in charge of the House. But when you were trying to broker a deal, and let's be real here, you were trying to broker a deal between Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and Republican and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, and couldn't get it. Aren't the issues that were at play then still the issues at play now? I think qualified immunity was one of the was one of the big issues looming over those negotiations. Why should anything? Why should things be better this go around once now the CBC is um, ginning up negotiations again? Well, you know, this might seem far-fetched, but maybe because the racial angle was not so stark, maybe Mm. that will help the Republicans from not going in their corner. But, you know, we do have to continue to push. And although we were not successful uh, nationally, I will tell you that laws changed around the country in a number of different states, a number of different local jurisdictions. So all of the protests that happened, the peaceful protests, 
I'm not talking about the ones that resulted in vandalism. But those protests really did serve as a catalyst in many locations. So I think it's critical that the CDC continue the national efforts while we continue to struggle locally uh, as well as in different states. Madam Mayor, you are um, within the first hundred days of your of your mayoralty. One of the things you said at the very beginning was that um, homelessness was why you got into the race. You are now mayor and you declared um, a homeless crisis in your city. What exactly does that mean and what are you hoping to achieve? Sure. Well, first of all, I put the city in a state of emergency. And what we are doing right now is we are getting people off the streets who are in tents. But we're not just moving them around. We're not giving them tickets or arresting them. We're putting them in housing. We've learned the lessons from the pandemic, which is there's motels all over Los Angeles. And so we are leasing out motel rooms and hopefully we'll even begin purchasing motels so that we can put people in temporary housing that is not shelters. And then we are fast forwarding building um, permanent uh, supportive housing. So one of the things that my state of emergency and the executive directives that I that I signed afterwards, it expedites building. So in Los Angeles, it's particularly difficult because of the bureaucracy. So the state of emergency executive directive allows us to say this is an emergency away with the bureaucracy. And then um, how will the people of Los Angeles know that this state of emergency has been successful? What, you know what? There's only one measure, and that is a reduction in the number of tents. I know that we're not going to be able to get rid of all of the tents and move people into housing. But, you know, we're doing the count right now. You know, in Los Angeles City alone, there's almost 50,000 people who are unhoused. If you add our county in, you could add in almost another 30,000. And so you're talking about massive numbers of people who are on our streets. And so that is going to take a while. But I tell you, people have already uh, expressed enthusiasm because they've seen some particularly difficult situations go away and people are housed. I've been out doing the outreach myself, along with the community based organizations. And now we're trying to reach scale. So I'm bringing this into the center of my administration. I am treating it as though it is a natural disaster. In fact, it is a man made disaster for a variety of reasons. But we have to take it head on. It is front and center of my administration, and I'm not going to stop until the people of Los Angeles stop dying on the streets. You know that L.A. is 9 percent African-American and 30 percent of the people who are unhoused. Seventy four percent of the people who are unhoused are either black or Latino. And by the way, four or five of them die every day. And on that note, we are going to leave it there. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, as always, thank you very much for coming to The Sunday Show. Thank you, Aunt Jonathan. And coming up, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and Congresswoman Barbara Lee on the looming catastrophe if the United States defaults on its debt and their thoughts on the House's new Republican majority. Don't go anywhere. Much more of The Sunday Show ahead. A little breaking news this morning. We just learned that Speaker McCarthy says he will meet with President Biden on Wednesday to discuss the debt ceiling. Democrats and President Biden are calling for a clean increase of the debt ceiling with no strings attached. 
while Speaker McCarthy and the far-right Republican majority want major changes to how the U.S. spends its money. Changes that could affect tens of millions of Americans in massively important programs like Social Security and Medicare. Joining me now here in studio, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal from the great state of Washington. She's also the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, a senior member of the Appropriations Committee. Congresswoman, thank you both very much for coming back to the Sunday show. Congresswoman Jayapal, since you are here right next to me, I'm going to start with you. You're a member of the Budget Committee. Um, your reaction to some of the Republican demands to raising the debt limit. Does it make any sense to tie raising the debt ceiling, raising the debt limit to uh, FY25's budget? No, it absolutely doesn't. And by the way, it's great to see you in studio. Um, look, here's the thing. This is hypocrisy, pure and simple, from the Republicans. Republicans, whenever they are in control, have continued to increase the deficit. Ronald Reagan actually doubled the deficit. George Bush doubled the def, almost doubled the deficit. Um, Democratic presidents have always cut the deficit, just like Joe Biden did in the last year. The deficit actually went down. Why? By a trillion dollars, if memory serves. Correct. Exactly. And why? Because when we're in office, we increase revenues and we look at what are the investments we make in spending, right? Programs that allow people to get back into the economy. That's why if you create 10 million new jobs and you bring unemployment down to its lowest level, you actually can cut the deficit. So mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. They want to cut and shut down government. We want to make sure we continue to invest in the American people. Mm -hmm. You know, Congresswoman Lee, you're not only on, on the Appropriations Committee, you're also on the Budget Committee. And uh, just from your perch, from your vantage point, does it make sense to tie the debt ceiling to um, future budget talks? Absolutely not. Let me just say, Jonathan, how happy I am to be with you and my sister, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, who has led this progressive caucus in a way that is unbelievable in terms of people now clamoring just to be a member of the progressive caucus. Her leadership uh, has been stellar. And as a former co-chair of the progressive caucus, I can say this with credibility and know how she has shepherded uh, our work for the people. So let me just say about uh, the debt ceiling. First of all, we have to understand that uh, we have to pay our bills. Uh, some don't understand quite what the debt ceiling means. It means if you purchase a car, you have committed to pay the car note. If you don't pay your car note, you default. You then uh, get a bad credit rating. Uh, if you buy, want to purchase a future car, the interest rate is going to go up. So there's no question that there's no issue as it relates to attempting to cut uh, Medicare, Social Security, uh, veterans' pensions to pay uh, a bill a debt that is old. And so we have to decouple this and say, yes, we're going to pay uh, our debts and then look at uh, whatever negotiations take place to really begin to uh, invest more in working families, lifting people out of poverty, making the child tax credit permanent and all the other investments that uh, mm -hmm. will allow people to live the American dream. 
Mm-hmm. And I'll be curious how that meeting goes on Wednesday between the president and the speaker. But Congressman Jayapal, let's switch gears for, for a moment. Leave aside debt ceiling. We're still talking about uh, Speaker McCarthy because he has been shy about kicking Democrats off of uh, certain committees. At least three Republicans have joined Democrats to oppose an effort to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from House um, Foreign Affairs. And I just got a, I just saw a tweet a second ago that um, she's been formally appointed to House Foreign Affairs by the um, uh, by leader leader Jeffries. My question is this: We've had, as I just said, there have been there were last I saw three Republicans right. who are opposed to this effort. One, are you involved in an effort to bring more Republicans along in opposing removing her from Foreign Affairs? And two, how many? Well, look, this is um, absolutely ludicrous that Speaker McCarthy wants to bring this to a vote to kick a very valued member off the committee simply for her views and to somehow tie it to a bipartisan vote that took other Republicans who were involved in the insurrection, uh, in, involved in violent attacks, uh, violent speech. That's very, very different. There is no equivalence here. And so I really want to congratulate the Republicans who um, have come out and courageously said, you know what, this is not the right thing to do. I'm going to vote no. Yes, I'm close to a couple of those people that are either public about it or are going to um, have mm-hmm. privately said that they're going to oppose it. Okay, so we all know because of the 15 ballots it took Speaker McCarthy to become Speaker that he can only lose four votes. Yeah. Uh, I just mentioned three. Um, to your knowledge right now, are there more than five Republicans who are opposed to um, removing Congresswoman Omar from House Foreign Affairs? Based on what I've heard, yes. And so it may never come to a vote. And again, I just want to applaud the Republicans who are doing the courageous thing. And listen, when people are public and they say publicly that they're going to vote no, like my friend Ken Buck, courage begets courage. And hopefully this means that others, the dam will break. Others Mm -hmm. will feel like they also can say that they're going to vote no. Mm -hmm. Congresswoman Lee, we've got two minutes left and I've got two big questions to ask you. So keep that in mind. First question is I I would love for your um, your thoughts on the, the, the video that we've all been watching and horrified by the beating of Tyree Nichols. Jonathan, first of all, it was gut-wrenching. Uh, and I at first didn't want to watch the video. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I must, must do this. Uh, and now I've watched it several times. First of all, secondly, um, I have two sons and two grandsons and Mm -hmm. my kids, I had to have the talk with them in the day, still having the talk with my grandsons in the day. And my heart goes out to Tyree's family and community and friends, because this is uh, something that uh, reflects the systemic uh, disparities, the systemic inequities in our police culture. We've got to not only enact police reform, we've got to dismantle these systems that allow police officers to uh, dehumanize individuals and Mm -hmm. then believe it's okay to kill and beat someone that leads to their death. And so I am so, uh, I would say so, so much in grief, like everyone, we're grieving, but I'm really pleased to see so many people hitting the streets because you know what? Mm -hmm. It's only going to be if we organize and if we push hard 
uh, for this type of reform to, to happen. And it's going to come from the outside. It's not going to come from the inside. Mm-hmm. And so we all have to take this moment and recognize that this system of police, this culture of policing has to change right. and uh, keep fighting for that. Uh, Congresswoman, last question, and we're way over time, but I can't have you here and not ask you this. Congresswoman Katie Porter and Congressman Adam Schiff have announced they're running for the Senate seat now occupied by Senator Dianne Feinstein. Your name is also in the mix. Um, you haven't said whether what, what you're going to do, but I have a question, different question for you. Governor Newsom has said he would appoint a black woman to the Senate if another vacancy were made available, as happened when Senator Kamala Harris became Vice President Kamala Harris. So if that happened, why shouldn't that black woman be you? Well, let me just say, Senator Feinstein uh, indicated that she uh, will announce whether or not she's going to run for re-election. And um, she deserves the respect to make her own decisions in her own time. In the meantime, I've been encouraged by all the support I've received uh, to run. And so I will uh, give an announcement as it relates to the formal date when I will launch my campaign. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I was I was hoping for a different kind of answer, but that was great. Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, thank you both very much for coming back to the Sunday show. And up next, the conspiracy theorist turned Queen Bee of the GOP. Why the rise of Marjorie Taylor Greene should worry us all. Ronna McDaniel succeeded Friday in securing another term as head of the Republican National Committee. But the real power in the GOP appears to be MTG, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. During Kevin McCarthy's fight for the gavel, you see right there, she got Donald Trump on speed dial to help him strong arm votes for him. For that loyalty, a New York Times story reports that McCarthy has told a friend, quote, I will never leave that woman I will always take care of her. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene is said to be angling for the VP slot on Trump's 2024 ticket. Please forgive me, Alicia Keys, but this girl is on fire and could burn our democracy down. Joining me now, former Homeland Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, Olivia Troy, and former DHS Chief of Staff Miles Taylor. Thank you both very much for coming back to the Sunday show. Miles, uh, thanks to Speaker McCarthy, MTG has enormous clout in the Republican conference and is now a member of both House Oversight and House Homeland Security Committees. Why is that so dangerous? Well, Jonathan, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would say welcome to the era of the QAnon Congress because what Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has done in elevating someone so dangerous into this position is, I think, genuinely created a national security challenge. It's not just that Marjorie Taylor Greene has wacky views. This woman is basically the TikTok star of domestic terrorism. And now she's serving on the committee that's supposed to protect Americans 
from terrorist attacks. I mean, again, remember, she was a voracious defender of the people who launched a terrorist attack on the United States Capitol. And by putting her in these positions, it normalizes her views. But it also does more mm-hmm. than that, Jonathan. It doesn't just normalize her views because Kevin McCarthy has indicated, like in that quote you just read, that he is so close to her, he has made other members of Congress motivated to go seek her out, to seek her influence, and to mimic her. And so her power has definitely been elevated. She's gone from a pariah to a key player in the Republican conference. And I think it is uh, worrisome to trust her on these committees. One thing Mm -hmm. I've noted previously, Jonathan, is these committees write what's called secret laws, classified annexes attached to legislation that the public cannot read. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is now on a committee that regularly writes secret laws. That is a big worry for me and I think for other national security observers. Wow, that is frightening. Olivia, I would love your thoughts on this as well. But I'm also wondering, Greene, um, she's attempting to rebrand herself as someone who can walk the line between establishment and far right members of Congress. And, you know, She was once a believer in QAnon conspiracy theories. I'm just wondering, is there even a distinction anymore between the so-called establishment and the far right and conspiracy wings of the Republican Party? Well, unfortunately, not right now. I mean, even uh, the sane and I would say good and quote Republicans are struggling because, as you can see, the ones that are being elevated and empowered are the crazies, are the people, the irresponsible people that are elected in Congress right now in the GOP and people like Marjorie Three Names. And, uh, you know, what's frightening about that is the fact that remember when we used to just kind of write off Donald Trump when he when he was when he started running for office and everybody thought it was a joke and that he wouldn't make it. And he made it to the Oval Office. And so when I watch people like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that they want to potentially be Madame Vice President someday under Trump, I don't write that off. I actually think that's a very big concern. And we should be paying attention to this because she's clearly clamoring for the attention. She put that out there so people can, you know, so that Trump can see it and he can keep it in the back of his mind. Unfortunately for her, honestly, Donald Trump is a shallow human being. And I don't think she's going to meet the looks match for him. Uh, And, you know, I hate to say that uh, to disparage another female, but we know how shallow this man is. Right. right. And, you know, she's elevating her her attention by saying inflammatory things, Miles, and doing all sorts of things to uh, uh, attention seeking things. But one of the areas where she's been successful in attention seeking is in fundraising. In the last election cycle, she raised twelve point five million dollars, which put her in the top 10 of all House candidates. So, Miles, will this make her viable for the VP nod. Is she insane for even aiming that high? Not anymore. I don't think it's crazy for her to think that she could rise to that type of position because Jonathan Marjorie Taylor Greene is not an anomaly anymore. She is the future of the Republican Party. Now, the conventional wisdom says that in the midterm elections this past year, that the that the bad guys lost, that the extremists lost. But actually, it was a wipeout for moderates. And let me tell you why. Because clones of Marjorie Taylor Greene did very well across the country. Uh, we tracked, my organization, 250 people who were conspiracy theorists and believed in political violence, who entered the election process this last cycle and expected only a tiny fraction of them would win. Of those 250, almost a third of them won their races. So clones of Marjorie Taylor Greene are winning races and she exemplifies where the Republican Party is headed. So I think it's a big concern. It's a trend line 
that we're tracking here, but this is what we're going to be talking about. I mean, Kevin McCarthy just the other day was posting on Instagram about how he did Don Trump Jr.'s podcast and how proud he was. These are the figures of the modern Republican Party, and it's really going to take a generational effort of centrists, of moderates, of principled Republicans to try to swing the pendulum back. And real quickly, Olivia, you know, I was just about to ask you, you know, is the Republican Party doomed? Is her rise, even further rise uh, in power, just inevitable, given where where the party is? But as Miles said, you know, it's a generational effort to move the party away from the extremes. Is, ge- is a generational effort enough time? Is the party so far gone? Look, I, I think we are in this space for a while with the GOP, unfortunately. I hate it. I, like, I was a lifelong Republican, like Miles was, um, and it's, it's actually a disgrace to the history of the Republican Party, I would say, that all of these people have been empowered. But I don't think we're out of the woods anytime soon when it comes to this. I think when you see people like her that are being placed on committees where she has no business being on um, and others that are being empowered and being put on oversight committees when them themselves should be investigated, I think this is who the party is for the long run for a while. Mm. Oh, that is too bad for the Republican Party, but more importantly, too bad for the American people. Olivia Troy, Miles Taylor, as always, thank you both very much for coming to the Sunday show. And up next, we've got a smorgasbord. I can never say that word of all the best sound of the week, including today's news from Speaker McCarthy that he's going to meet with President Biden this week. Keep it right here. It's time to sound off on the biggest stories of the week with my Sunday panel. So let's get right to it. Congresswoman, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, MSNBC political analyst, former Congressman Joe Walsh, who's a former 2020 Republican presidential candidate and author of, well, I can't say that word on TV, <laughs> blank silence, calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man he is. And John Bresnahan, co-founder of Punchbowl News. Ooh. I don't, have you always had that beard, John? No, and I knew you were going to say something about it. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brez. I'm going to start with you, Brez, because uh, (laughs) Kevin McCarthy was on on Face the Nation um, breaking a little news. Watch this. You have accepted an invitation to meet with President Biden. Um, When will that happen and what offer will you put on the table? Well, we're going to meet this Wednesday. I know the president said he didn't want to have any discussions, but I think it's very important that our whole government is designed to find compromise. I want to find a reasonable and a responsible uh, way that we can lift the debt ceiling, but take control of this runaway spending. Okay, Brez, you need to give us the, the, the newsy backstory on all this. I just take issue with the speaker saying, I know the president didn't want to have any discussions. That is not exactly correct, but go on, Brez. No, and the White House was always—I mean, the president was always going to meet with the Speaker of the House. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House. He's always going to meet with the president. If you talk to White House officials, they said this was going to happen. Now, this is—the question here is, are they going to start negotiating, or is everybody just going to say, this is my position, this is my position, and then just stare at each other for a couple months until this debt ceiling issue gets really serious? Because there is a problem with the deficit. And there's another huge problem. 
is Republicans, led by Kevin McCarthy, House Republicans, want to cut spending by $130 billion. And that's just not going to fly. So there's, you know, there's a real issue here. It's good to see the meeting. This is the opening round, but there's a long way to go on this. Right. I mean, you know, they're going to stare at each other like everyone did in 20, in 2011, right up until the very last minute. But Congresswoman Edwards, you know, when we talk about this, we got to make something clear. Raising the debt ceiling and the federal budget in terms of negotiating, you know, next fiscal year spending are two completely different things because the debt ceiling is about paying for that meal and vacation and fancy car we just bought. And the budget, the you know, next year's budget is about future spending. Why is it? Come on. The speaker knows this. Why is he conflating the two? Yeah, well, he's conflating it because of politics. And the reality is it's what Brett said, that the president had said he's not going to negotiate over whether we pay our, our bills that are due and owing in order to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. And then the context for discussing spending is, I mean, the McCarthy has said he's committed to regular order. Well, regular order is that the context of future spending is through the appropriations and budget mm-hmm. process. And so I think the president is right on on target in saying we can't negotiate of whether we of whether we pay the interest on our our, our debt so that we don't um, send interest rates even higher, lose our credit rating, cost take taxpayers billions of dollars the way it cost taxpayers one point three billion dollars back in 2011. But yes, we can have a discussion about future spending. But it has to be a, a fulsome discussion of defense and non-defense um, discretionary spending. Mm-hmm. Now, um, former Congressman Walsh, you know, I was doing some a little research going back, looking at my old columns for my God, 11 years ago, 12 years ago uh, on that 2011 debt ceiling fight. And I came across a, a column I wrote smacking you around for your comments about about the debt ceiling. A lot of things have changed in in the 12 years. Um, Where are you in terms of raising the debt ceiling and whether or not it should be tied to future spending? Uh, Jonathan, I remember that column, and I probably (laughs) deserve to get whacked upside the head. Look, uh, we played this game and we had this fight in 2011. And yes, I and a number of my fellow Republicans, Jonathan, made a mistake back then, uh, tying raising the debt ceiling to a legitimate issue of government spending. Why did we do that, Jonathan? Because we feed this stuff to our base. And that's what McCarthy and Republicans are still doing today. Kevin McCarthy, Jonathan, actually had to sit his entire conference down last week to explain the difference to them in raising the debt ceiling and shutting down the government. Explain why those two things are very different things. And I would only add this. Republicans like McCarthy and Jim Jordan and all the rest, they didn't say squat about spending or leveraging the debt ceiling fight when Donald Trump was the president. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that is entirely true. You know what? We're going to you guys are going to come back, but we're we're going to switch gears. Um, the sound off panel that you see you see there will be right, will be back when we come back. Stay with us.
The Sound Off panel is back with me. I'm going to switch gears and talk about um, the, the, the death of Tyree Nichols. Brez, um, over the last two hours, a lot of mention has been made of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We just heard um, we, we just heard about um, efforts to revive negotiating that. What's the possibility of that? Oh, we, oh, we lost Brez. Oh, man. Oh, and we just lost <laughs> we just lost everybody. It's Congresswoman Edward here. Donna, are you here? There you are. OK, look, it's just us now. You know, oh, now everybody's back. Where's Brez? Because I, I wanted some real. No, Brez. All right, Donna, your 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 reaction to um, the video we've all been living with and dealing with since Friday, and that is of the brutal merciless beating of Tyree Nichols. Well, you know, when I, I couldn't watch the entire video, I think I um, expressed what so many Americans across the country um, feel. Uh, but what I did watch and what I've read about is just so incredibly brutal. And as the mother of a young black man who, um, even as he is getting older, I still worry about him. And I think that this is the expression that is happening around the country, and yet there doesn't seem to be anything that at the federal level that Congress is willing to do um, in order to um, to get through to policing that this is not you don't police communities like this, and um, and you know so watching um, even a little bit of that video, there's such a visceral reaction um, as a mother, as an American, as a black woman. Um, to seeing this yet again. Mm -hmm. um, Brez, we heard many times um, on the air to, today that, you know, this calls for passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. How realistic is that to happen, especially with Republicans in the majority in the House? I don't see any chance that that legislation passes. Look, it got hung up on the issue of qualified immunity in the last Congress. You had Senators Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, and <clears throat> Senator Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey, two, two African-American senators, two black senators. They negotiated for months over that issue. Police organizations were very concerned about that and then ended up not passing. And I, as you mentioned, there's now our, uh, Republicans in the House. The first bill they wanted to vote on, or the first two bills they wanted to vote on, were praising police, um, which, listen, I, I understand police have a difficult, difficult job. But, you know, just as, as, as Donna just said, we've gone the, through this for how long? I don't know when it's, it's going to stop. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is something that we, you know, every six months or a year, we keep seeing this happen. And Congress should respond. But I don't see any likelihood of any bill that real, real, real reform coming through the Congress, the 118th Congress. Mm -hmm. and, and Joe Walsh is a former member of Congress, former Republican member of Congress. If you were in the chamber now, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, came up for a vote, how would you vote? Jonathan, I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I don't know that any federal legislation can fix this. Cops like those five Memphis cops need to be held accountable. The other thing, Jonathan, that jumps out at me is I I'm pro cop. I think there are more good cops than bad cops. But damn it, good cops need to publicly, publicly 
condemn this behavior. And Jonathan, the one other thing I'd add is, look, I wouldn't have said this five or six years ago, but I've opened my eyes and I've learned Cops don't treat black lives the same way they treat white lives. I think it's incumbent upon white Americans to say that and to lead the charge on this. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. Former Congressman Joe Walsh, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, John Bresnahan, thank you all very much for coming back to The Sunday Show. Before we go... We sadly have to say goodbye to one of the people who helped get the Sunday show on the air every weekend. And AM Joy, and I also think Melissa Harris-Perry going way back. Senior producer extraordinaire, Rachel Slata. She's an amazing writer and editor with a razor-sharp wit. She's our, also our team's uh, legal expert because while she was working on this show, she also earned her law degree and pass the bar on her first try. I just want to add, behind the scenes, Rachel gave voice, gave voice to and brought passion for the powerless and the voiceless. And now she'll bring that voice and those values to people in need of a housing attorney. So, Rachel, we will miss you, but we wish you well in your next adventure as an attorney at law. Your clients are going to be lucky. Thank you at home for watching The Sunday Show. I'll be back next Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern, but stay tuned at noon for the latest. Richard Louie is in the chair for Alex Witt. That's next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.